Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke? I'm going to go back and read the whole context here because it actually begins in Luke 20 and verse 45. We covered that last time, but it leads us right into chapter 21 and verse 1 and what follows. So I want to, at this point, lay out the scenario. It's very, well, it's all important to us. What, what can we say? What started in the Old Testament became perverted by the will and mind of man. So the Old Testament system then becomes known as Judaism and Judaism is concluded by Christ himself to be of the devil. Now they say he's of the devil. And in this general setting, and we have to bounce between Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 20 and 21 to uh, Matthew 23, did I say? Mark 12 and 13, Matthew 23 and 24, Luke 20 and 21. This, we're, we're getting here to, to the conclusion of the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry. It's over. No more invitations. No more debating with the religious leaders of Israel. That's, this would be it, except for his private except for his private time with his disciples. So this is Wednesday before Friday when he's crucified. It's a very long and, and busy day. He has, he has engaged the elders, then he engaged the scribes. He proclaimed himself as the Christ, the Messiah. He warns his disciples about the way of the scribes. This was Judaism, which had gripped the people. Understand this. The people, and this comes out in Matthew 24 in an expanded version of what we're going to look at here. The people themselves were not innocent. They are also concluded to be part of a hellish system. And it comes out in their hearts when they deny him and call for Barabbas. So it's, it's not like you have this, this large group, this, this, these multitudes of otherwise innocent Jewish people uh, who have been suckered into something. It, 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 it goes beyond that and Christ knows their hearts. So along that way then, Christ gives his scathing condemnation, a sermon really against the scribes and Pharisees. This is in, we, see, we see a little of it right here, but the expanded version is in Matthew 23. Uh, yeah, Matthew 23. And so Christ 
tells them right who they are. They're, they're not just hypocrites. They are, they are sons of hell. He says to them, he, this is all on Wednesday. He says to them, you, you, you're not entering, entering into the kingdom yourselves and you're shutting the door to the kingdom to other people. Now, of course, he's referring to the gospel that he comes to preach and, and, and salvation through the Christ who, who he is. So you're, you're working against the kingdom and you travel the world, he said in that general context, he said, you go over land and sea to seek one convert and when he becomes converted to Judaism, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. On down, then he calls them uh, a brood of vipers. He calls them serpents, which is a direct reference to Satan. And uh, at the end of that sermon concludes the whole system to be satanic. You have to understand this. God sent his son to correct all of this. Christ now is exhausted at the end of the day. So this is a summary here. We're going back to Luke 20 and cover what we saw because I want to make the connection to the greater context that we're going to look at. Okay, having said all that, here we go. Luke 20, verse 45, and then we'll keep going. Remember, when Luke wrote this to the most excellent Theophilus, he didn't divide it into chapters and verses. That was done by... That was done by a Catholic priest hundreds of years later. So this is just an ongoing letter from Luke. Now all the people were listening. He said to his disciples, beware of the scribes desiring to walk in long robes. Now this is where in Matthew he really starts it out. Woe to the scribes and woe to them. Woe, all the bad things. And Christ is obviously very, very motivated <laughs> and energized in his sermon against them. Desiring to walk in long robes, loving the greetings in marketplaces, having the first seats in synagogues, first places in the banquets. Now, here's the point. Who devour the houses of widows. And as a pretext, pray at a long duration, these will receive more abundant condemnation. All right. The... The, within the greater context here, Judaism is a consuming religious system that abuses everybody but who's in charge. Over the years, the people who were supposed to be the people of God slowly drifted away from the word of God. And they mixed in with the word of God, the traditions of men, rules and regulations that had become imposed on the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, rather than standing on the word of God, just accepted this whole thing. And Christ in Matthew 23 tells the scribes and Pharisees that they had laid a great burden on these people. They were abusing the people and the people were taking the abuse. Because, I don't know, there is an innate feature of a depraved nature 
that makes a human being think that he has to do something himself to contribute to his salvation. I have to do something. It can't just be of grace. It can't just be laid on the backs of the Son of God and then, and then me rest in him. There has to be more than, you see, okay. So what happens is man-made rules, extra biblical principles are added to the backs of the people. This is what happened to the Jews in Judaism. People were made to feel guilty by just the very appearance of the robed, phylacteried Pharisees and, and the scribes and all their appearance. Their, their, the abeyance of the people and how they were given the first places and all this. Man, this is just perfect for these elitists. Yes, this is where we belong. Christ even said in Matthew 23, to paraphrase, he said, you're requiring of the people something you can't even do yourself. But you wouldn't know it by looking at them. And their long public prayers, oh, how wonderful they sounded and how great and holy they looked. So the ordinary person was made to think, I have to do more. Or... I'm not up to the principles that have been laid down by our, by our religious leaders. So they have these, these other offerings that are added. A votive offering for a consecrated offering. A consecrated or a votive offering had its roots, really. I mean, it's, it's a pagan thing. It's, uh, I'm going to make a vow to my God... And then I'm going to give him something to prove to him that I intend to do what I said I would do. And that thing that I give to my God, I'm going to put on display so that people will know that I have made a votive offering and a vow in my heart. The court of the women was the largest outer court inside the temple. The court of the women. On either side is huge. Uh, just standing up, you could get thousands of people crowded in there. On either side, as you come through that gate, what was it, on the eastern side, I guess? On the, you come through the gate, on either side, there, was, there were these depositories that were very visible, and the, that was the treasury. So this is where the people, this is where the people in front of everybody because in the court of the women, everybody could go in there, you know. And then inside there was the court of the men and then it was smaller and then inside was the court of the priesthood and then the holy place and the most holy, holy of holies. So everybody could see what goes on in the court of the women. Therefore, you could, you could publicly display the great votive offering that you give, which bespoke of a vow that you had made. And this would make you look by your works, by your definition, this would make you look in front of people like you were really godly. You were really somebody special. Everybody in Judaism was guilty of it. Works 
salvation. Believing that we can actually raise ourselves up by our behavior and our works, what we contribute to our religious lives, we can actually reach up to and surpass the standard that God has made for us. That included widows. People have been duped into this false, satanic, religious system of works. Works, salvation. No grace, all of works. By bloodline and behavior, deserving of God's heaven. God would have no choice in the matter. God must honor me by who I am and what I've done. That's how it was in Judaism. So Christ noted that these elitists, and in the, remember in the expanded version in Matthew 23, he said, you can't even do it yourselves. You've laid this burden on these people, but they were the ones in charge. Now, I just told you that gifts were given and all this. Well, they were making money at this thing. They had money changers that Christ had thrown. The whole thing started with him throwing out the money changers. Several verses earlier. So it was, uh, it was a scam. The whole thing was a scam. Here in our text in Luke, he notes that they devoured the houses of widows. I talked about that last time. But the widows also were investing their lives in a satanic religious system. Okay, so forget, forget the chapter designation and all of that because this whole thing is flowing and it keeps going all in the same setting of Christ with his disciples. These will receive the more abundant condemnation. All right, so... It keeps going and we move and we flow right into chapter 21. Okay, so Christ is exhausted, exhausted. He is seated in the court of the women where the, the greater crowds were and that's where he would teach. And by design, the treasury was visible to everybody and you can see what people were doing. Now having looked up, he saw the rich ones casting their gifts into the treasury. Then he saw a certain poor widow casting in two lepta. It was a brass coins, about something like one twenty-eighth of a drachma. It was, wasn't much. And he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow is cast in more than, than all. For all these cast in gifts out of which was abounding to them, but she out of her poverty has cast in all the livelihood that she had. There are two Greek words here for poor or poverty. She's called a poor widow with one word and then she's called impoverished. Uh, and one word is, is different from uh, the other word. So the first one, poor, uh, toke, toke, 
from takas, which means abject poverty. You don't have anything. If you are described by that word as poor, and that's how she's described as a poor widow, poor. If you have that kind of poverty in your life, you cannot feed yourself. You cannot help yourself in any way. You are totally and absolutely dependent upon everybody else. And if you don't have that outside help, you will die. This is what Jesus, this is what, this, what the word says. In my view, Christ is pointing out an illustration of what this religious system is doing to people. Essentially, he's saying it's killing poor widows. The, they, they are another case of, of, of society anyway. First of all, a woman and then a widow and then poor. And what, what that all means is in every way imaginable, she has to count on somebody else or she'll die. She can't live for herself. Now, she, whatever she had, however she got this meager fare, I don't know. But what she had, she gave it away. Now, a lot of people look at this and they think, oh, I'm going to brag on this woman. And sometimes preachers may use this as a tithing sermon. She, the Bible never, and nowhere in the Bible... is this kind of thing required. Now, there was the rich young ruler. Christ said, go sell everything that you have and come follow me. But Christ would have taken care of him. Here, she makes the trick. Christ knows her heart. You see, it says a certain poor widow, so he knows her thought. He knows who she is. She gives everything. She, when she leaves that treasury, she has nothing left. She killed herself trying to save herself. Spiritually. I don't take this personally. I don't take this as something whereby Christ is bragging on the widow. He just makes the observation after having said in this long sermon against scribes and Pharisees and the religious system itself. After that long sermon, here she comes and she's a perfect illustration of what he's talking about. She, with nothing left in her life, she's still trying to save herself because of what these religious leaders have taught her and what she, what she believes in her heart that this is going to contribute to her salvation. It didn't hurt the rich people. They gave out of their abundance and they still had a lot of stuff left. She's just going to kill her. This is all she has. So it's a, in my view, it's an illustration of the greater point that Christ is making with his condemnation of a false religious system that depends on human works. If you have to work to save yourself, how much work do you have to do? Who defines the work? What kind of work? Do some works get more points than others? If you work to save yourself, then if you 
stumble along the way, are those points taken away? You can see how absurd the whole thing is. Christ has come to set us free from this kind of religion. All right, so with that said, now, let's look at Matthew 23. I didn't put the whole contextual part, but it starts out where after Christ has preached this, this condemning sermon upon the scribes and Pharisees, he, he starts out with this, this part and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets, you've stoned the people who've come to help you and, and all. And Christ is putting an end to his ministry here. Here's what he says. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Christ is leaving the temple. The presence of God is in the person of Christ. He has been preaching and teaching. He's made this observation. Then he leaves the temple. When Christ leaves the temple, the temple is desolate. They didn't come to Christ. They did not heed his gospel nor his warnings. They cared not for who he was. He came to his own and his own received him not. So he laments over Jerusalem. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That means the temple is meaningless. You keep working for your salvation by doing all of this stuff in the temple. It's desolate. God is not there. For I say to you, you will not see me from now on until you say, blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. Now, You and I are living in the era, we continue to live in the era of the judgment of God upon Israel. Paul makes it very clear to the Romans that a, a Jewish person cannot be saved unless he comes to Christ. Just be part of the church. Now, the remnant of, of Jews continues within the church presently. But generally, we live in the age of judgment, of desolation. There is no temple right now. Some 40 years after Christ proclaims this judgment, the temple is leveled. AD 70, I'm sure you've heard this historical account many times. The Roman general comes, finally puts down this whole thing. We'll talk, about, talk more about that in just a second. But Christ declares to Israel because he knows they're about to kill him. You will not see me. That's their God. He's, he's God. He's their God. You will not see me from now until you say blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. And that actually happens in Zechariah 12, 13, 14. You can read about it. 
They look upon the one whom they pierced. This, this, this horrific war from Gentile nations comes down upon them and then Christ comes back in glory and power. Now that's what, he was, that's what they thought he was doing the first time. They, they totally ignored the suffering Christ and their need for him to take their sin. They totally ignored all that part of scripture. They were looking for the glorious return of Christ. Well, it'll happen and that's what he's talking about here. And this, this carries him in to the Olivet Discourse, which is his teaching on his second coming to his disciples. But he declares to Jerusalem specifically and to Israel in general. You won't know your God again, ever. Until you cry out when you see me. Blessed is the one. It's in the masculine so you can say blessed is he. Coming in the name of the Lord. Zechariah more or less describes that. They look upon the one whom they pierced. They begin to cry and repent. And they repent by tribe and by family and in, by, by individuals. They all cry out and they recognize the great flaw that they've suffered from as a people for so, so long. Well, that part is in Matthew, but it carries us sort of in the context of what's happening here. Now, back to Luke 21. And as some were speaking about the temple, okay, what had Christ just said? He had just placed the whole thing under condemnation. The whole religious system, which was centered in the activity of the temple. So the temple then becomes meaningless to Christ is, is condemning and judging whatever's going on, whatever the temple represents at that point. Christ calls it satanic, Matthew 23. Now in Luke 21, some were speaking about the temple that it was adorned with votive gifts, beautiful stones. Now, all right, so you want people to know that you've buddied up to God and you made him a promise. You made a vow to God. So you bring this votive, this consecrated gift into the treasury and you nail it to the wall or you hang it up somewhere so that everybody can see what you've given. Gold, silver, sometimes brass, jewels. So he said, as to these things you are beholding. All right, they've left the temple. The disciples are uh, talking about the glory of the temple, and it was glorious, probably the most beautiful, some say the most beautiful building in the world in its day. The eastern side was plated with gold. Herod did that so that when the sun rose, it would blind a man. It was adorned with carvings and artists, all this stuff. Man, it was beautiful. The stones, huge stones, some on the foundation nearly as big as this sanctuary, highly polished such that they almost looked like marble. It glistened. It was a wonderful thing. It took more than 80 years to build and it still was in construction at this time. So as they walk out, the disciples say, 
You know, Christ had just said this place is meaningless. And they're saying as they're walking, man, what a place. You know, somebody's got to say something, right? Here's what Jesus said. As to these things you're beholding, the days will come in, what? in which not one stone will be left upon a stone which will not be thrown down. Roman hordes come in, the armies of Rome. 6,000 Jews, men, women, and children, were crowded into the court of the women for protection. They were slaughtered by the Romans. Tens of thousands of others as well. They set the temple on fire. The Romans did, including the Holy of Holies. Then they began to tear the stones down, bring the walls down. Nobody would hide from the Romans anymore in a temple. So 40 years hence, the prophecy of Christ, that judgment had come upon Israel and upon Judaism is seen. These stones will be torn down and this so-called magnificent building will be raised and brought to rubble. Then they asked him saying, teacher, then when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now Matthew puts it this way. Jesus having gone forth and was going away from the temple, his disciples came to him to point out the, building of the, building of the buildings of the temple. And answering, he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, none, not even one stone shall be left upon stone which will not be thrown down. So that gives us, and we go back then to what they say here. What's going to be the sign? What are you talking about? What's, what's going to happen? Okay, so here, here's how it works out. They walk past then. Christ is utterly exhausted. He sits down at the Mount of Olives. Disciples privately came to him saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what is the sign of your coming and of the consummation of the age? Now we'll spend the next two or three sermons talking about Christ's teaching of his second coming. But to close this out in its perspective and what it means for us. They had drifted away from the absolute truth of the word of God such that men within leadership positions of that religious system were moved from their own greedy hearts to begin to add things to the Bible and lay those burdens on the people because it made them look special, it made them look good, it gave them lofty position, and it also enriched them. The people were abused. But the people, generally speaking, never objected to adding traditions to the Word of God. So there was guilt all around 
in this false religious system which Christ finally says is of the devil. It's of Satan. Any works salvation teaching is of the devil. Anything that questions the deity of Christ is of the devil. So, there having been so duped and abused, Christ gives them finally this scathing condemnation. Having preached the gospel clearly and taught the truths of the kingdom of God for all those three years, brings it to a close here. I've been telling you all through Luke that even the disciples didn't understand that Christ would come twice. He would come humbly as a servant, a suffering servant, and he would come again in power and glory. So he's been telling them that he was going to be crucified. He'd be turned over to civil and religious leaders and they'd kill him, crucified. The disciples are trying to, to sort this out, all out in their minds. And you'll see when you read the rest of the gospel and then the first part of the book of Acts, their thought is that Jesus is going to go away and he's going to come right back. Well, it's been 2,000 years and you and I are still in that judgment of desolation upon Israel. But we live... As the betrothed of Christ, we live as the church of the Lord Jesus. It takes the disciples a while to understand this. To, to sort of summarize what Jesus is going to say on the Olivet Discourse, he's going to say to his disciples, don't be in a big hurry. All kinds of things are going to happen in history. But none of those particular general points are going to be the end. Here is how the end will be. And then, of course, he finishes out his teaching uh, on the Olivet Discourse. We'll study that as the time comes. But following on what it means to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The atonement of Christ. The justification of God in Christ to us. All that God has done for us in Christ has set us free from tradition and man-made philosophies and principles. It has set us free that we might repose in Christ and rest upon his finished work. The gospel is a beautiful thing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Christ takes us up and commits to us that he will send his Holy Spirit. Thus he fills us, he deposits his Holy Spirit who in a supernatural way guides us and teaches us and helps us to grow as believers. So that we're sanctified and the sanctification becomes more obvious every day. It's a lifelong work to be sanctified to the Lord 
in our lives. We don't start out that way. But Christ has assumed the responsibility of taking care of us. And having ascended into heaven, he is seated thus as our high priest. And having died to save us on the cross, he lives in heaven right now to keep us saved. So that all that the Father has given to him will come to him and he will lose not one of them, he said, but raise them all up at the last day. So this is our promise in Christ. It's a beautiful and wonderful gospel. We make disciples once you come to Christ because of Christ in your heart, the Holy Spirit in your life. It can't stop there. Your spirit then yearns to grow. You see a little baby. He cracks his skull a half dozen times before he finally figures out how to walk. He'll gag himself half to death eating something that he can swallow, which he can't swallow. You have to watch him. This is sort of like the life of a Christian. I've cracked my skull spiritually a lot of times. But we have a Christ of God who cares for us, who has committed himself to us and will never, ever leave us. He's with me always to the end of the age. He won't leave me. I'm not the same Christian today. I was 20, 10, 20, 40 years ago. And if God gives me more years, I won't be the same Christian next year, five years, than I am today. Growing in Christ. I've, I think I've moved out of the milk and I'm, I'm working on the meat, I believe, I hope. So, this is the gospel. We preach Christ to the world. We trust that Christ knows who to save. Then we trust that Christ, having saved them, knows how to grow them. And in growing them, knows how to lead them and care for them until finally they are called, we are called to him. No life is wasted. Every life is fulfilled to the glory of God. The great gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He has come out of heaven and come down to save sinners. If you'll admit that you're a sinner, He'll save you. You can only know that you're a sinner by a revelation that divinely comes from the Holy Spirit of God. You otherwise think of yourself as pretty good. And then we trust Christ with our lives. And we seek the teaching of Christ and we seek to become more and more obedient. I'm obedient to things today that I was disobedient to maybe 20 years ago, but I didn't know at that time I was being disobedient. I didn't understand exactly maybe. Or maybe I was just stubborn. But as you walk on in this life, you come, the more you come to know God, the more you come to know yourself. And the greater 
the greater your thoughts are of God and the lesser your thoughts are of yourself. And it becomes more and more of God and less and less of me. So that we learn to walk humbly with our God. This is all a work of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus Christ who died to save us, who lives to keep us, who's coming again for us. We trust Christ. We're discipled. We learn more about him. And we follow the way of Christ. Thus in what Antioch, they were first called Christians. Of the body of Christ. This is how it works. This is the great gospel message. And we have none of, we have, we at least, thank God, at Shiloh Baptist Church. We don't have people laying on us man-made principles. I thank, I thank God for the Bible. <laughs> and I, I'm going to tell you this. The constitution of our church is nothing but Bible scriptures. That's all it is. So we're not going to take a lot of man-made laws and stuff and beat you over the head with it. We just trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. And knows how to carry us to the end. Well, here is the beginning of all of that. What is the sign of your coming? When will these things be? And the sign of the consummation of the age. Christ is going to tell us in the scriptures that are left. So do you understand, can you hear the gospel of Christ? Just come to Christ in faith. Come to Christ believing in Christ. Christ, via his Holy Spirit, takes care of all the details. That's faith. Now you learn about it in his precious Holy Word. We do not, unlike the Judaizers, we do not forsake absolute truth. We just anchor ourselves to Holy Scripture and nothing else. Nothing else. This is the life that is the life in Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on him in confession of sin to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's the invitation. If you're here today and you would come to Christ in the act of standing, you just come and take me by the hand. Pastor, I want to be saved. Let me pray with you. Maybe you're here. You're already a Christian and God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. You come as well. We'll take care of all the details of membership if that's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation and use it according to your will in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?